Welcome back to the Scones and Tomes Book Club, your monthly invitation to step into the amazing world of books, reading, and all things cozy. I'm your host, Librarian Anna, and I am so grateful that you are spending a piece of your day with me. For the month of August, we've been reading The Huntress by Kate Quinn, and I cannot wait to jump into our discussion today. But first, I would love to ask for your help in sharing this podcast with as many people as possible by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, subscribing, or just sharing the podcast with your friends over social media, you can directly help the various algorithms promote the podcast to more listeners. You can also support the podcast by reading the blog at thelibrarianana.wordpress.com, joining our Patreon community, or by setting up a one-time or monthly payment over on anchor.com slash scones and Tomes book club. All right, you know the drill. Go grab your cup of cozy and we'll get right into our discussion of The Huntress by Kate Quinn after we hear from today's sponsor. Happy last week of August, dearlings. I do apologize that this episode is getting uploaded so late. In my August newsletter, I mentioned that this month was shaping up to be a little crazy, so my posting schedule was going to be a little scattered, but I was not expecting it to be as packed as it was. But I'm all here now, and I'm so ready to get into our discussion. If you are joining us for the first time, we read The Huntress by Kate Quinn this month, and this is a World War II historical thriller novel that follows three primary points of view across two timelines. Nina, a Soviet bomber pilot during the war, Ian, a war correspondent turned Nazi hunter hell-bent on bringing his white whale to justice, and Jordan, a Bostonian and expiring photographer just chomping at the expectations of her father to get married and take over the family business. Eventually, their paths converge during Ian Ian and Nina's hunt for a notorious Nazi murderess known as the Huntress. My experience with this book can only be described as a roller coaster. I'm not sure if it was just because I hit a reading slump or if it was because I'm really not a fan of books about World War II. But getting into this book took forever. It was such a long on-ramp from page one to the point where I was actually really invested in what was going to happen. And I struggled bouncing between the three different points of view and having one of them being focused on a completely different timeline. I did, however, think that the writing style was phenomenal. It was a great balance between showing what was happening, but also telling the background information as needed without making it feel super info dumpy or super dumbed down, which I tend to find happens a lot with World War II novels. I ended up giving this novel a 6.14 Kalpile score, which equates to about a 3 out of 5 stars. Dear Sterlings, this is your official warning that the rest of this podcast is dark and full of spoilers. If you have not read this month's pick and would prefer not to get spoiled for events that happen in the novel, please take this as your permission slip to turn the episode off and come back after you've finished. Let's take a trip down the rabbit hole, shall we? So I need American classrooms to do a better job at teaching World War II because the things that I learned about the war just by reading this novel is absolutely insane. I know, teachers are underfunded and it's a huge curriculum that world history has to be taught. But I feel like if I had learned some of this stuff in history class, I would have paid more attention. Really, the only things I remember learning about in my high school history classes about World War II was the horrors of the concentration camps, the Japanese internment camps in the, here in the U.S., and Frank Schindler's List. Like, even the information about the Nuremberg trials is barely a blip in my memory. 
much less learning about Nazi hunters and night witches. Again, I'm pretty sure that if those four words had come up in my history class, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. So, like Nina described in the novel, the night witches were female Soviet bomber pilots who ended up being the Soviets' ace in the hole in regards to turning the table on the Nazis. Three regiments of women were taught how to fly rickety planes and drop bombs on German German forces camps, with the most famous being the 588th Regiment, which flew wooden canvas U-2 crop dusters at very low altitudes over enemy lines before dropping precision bombs on them. Their main attack technique was to idle the engines of their planes and quietly drift down until they had reached their targets, leading to the nickname of Night Witches. Because according to the Germans, it sounded like witches' brooms on the wind. So, while we don't condone communism in this podcast, it is pretty cool that the Soviet Union Russia was not only the first country to declare equality for women, but it was also the first country to have women working in active combat during the war efforts. Something that I also thought was really interesting that both the novel and historical articles bring up about the Night Witches is that they didn't abandon their quote-unquote femininity in order to take on these more traditionally masculine roles of bomber pilots. During their downtimes, they were known to follow more feminine pursuits of needlework, dancing, and decorating their planes, or even talking about settling down with a husband and babies or adopting war orphans after the war was over, like we see Yelena mention in the novel. For Nazi hunters, I never doubted that they existed, but I also never realized that they were such a big thing, especially after the Nuremberg trials. And... The one that caught me off guard was the idea of former members of the Nazi party gaining employment with the U.S. government after the war. Like, that just doesn't sound like a good idea in the slightest. Like, I'm sure they're probably really good at their jobs, especially when it comes to um, secret intelligence, but it just doesn't sound like a very good idea. While many historical fiction novels play with multiple perspectives and timelines, I found The Huntress to be quite unique in its structure since it follows two timelines over three perspectives that eventually converge into its explosive climax at the end. And while I like to believe that I've read a decent number of historical fiction novels, very few of them in my memory follow three characters, but only one of them is on a completely different timeline from the rest. So I struggled with the structure a lot. And I kept getting lost in time. And so even though I knew that Nina's chapters were the only ones that took place in the past, it was really hard to keep all of the timeline straight. Plus, when you start adding up the time skips and the hops in Ian and Jordan's chapters, it then got even more confusing than an Outlander novel. All right, dearlings, let's talk Annalise. Annalise is such an interesting villain. She's weirdly likable, and even when you realize what a terrible person she is, it's really hard to completely take Anna Weber, Jordan's stepmom, and combine her with Laura Leibot, aka the Huntress. Jordan honestly says it best on page 511, where the book says, Jordan thought of the woman on the dock with the pistol in her hand, a cornered animal ready to lash out at anyone, and shivered. But then there was the woman who had encouraged Jordan to want the world, who had comforted her when she cried for her father, but who had also murdered her father, 
and none of those images seemed to have anything to do with the woman huddled in the cabin doorway now, clutching a towel to her bandaged arm and shivering. I pity her, Jordan said. I hate that. I hate her. And yet I still care for her. Why can't I turn it off what I felt for her? And then it jumps down and says, I know why she did it, he'd answered. She did it because she wanted to, because she could, no matter what her other justifications might be. And I don't care to hear those. I care, Jordan thought, staring at the cabin. She wished that she did, but she did. And I just find that, like, such a apt way to describe my thoughts on Annalise. Like, she wanted more for Jordan than everybody else wanted to. She challenged Jordan to see beyond just what like her father and the rest and like their neighbors all wanted for Jordan. She saw that Jordan wanted to be more than just a wife of an Air Force pilot. There's nothing wrong with either of those things. It's just she saw what Jordan actually wanted. But at the same time, she still murdered a bunch of people, including six children. And that's not okay. So, um, I don't know when I realized that she wasn't who she said she was. I mean, I had some suspicions early on, just like Jordan. But I really didn't put two and two together until much later. I will say that I do wish we had a perspective chapter from Annalise like somewhere in here or even as like a bonus because I've one mainly because I've been really interested in seeing villains backstories and seeing how they think when it comes to reading but I guess generally the populace wants their heroes to be heroes and villains to stay that way but I can't help but be curious if Annalise really just murdered those people because she could Or if it really was some twisted sense of mercy. But I mean, murder is still murder, regardless. So this next bit is inspired by a question on the official reading guide that says, All the characters begin the book standing on different lake shores and ultimately end their final confrontation as Sophie Lake. How does this idea of lakes and lake spirits weave through the novel as a whole? So water across history and cultures has generally always meant renewal, rebirth, cleansing away the past, and starting anew. And we see that pretty much every time there is a lake mentioned in this novel. Nina's first chapter starts with her father trying to drown her at Old Man Lake, which ends up spurring her to think about leaving and choosing a new life, which of course then leads her to meeting a downed pilot and falling in love with planes, and moving on from there. At Selkie Lake, in the very beginning, Jordan is bugging her father about the woman he's been seeing secretly, not knowing what kind of worms she's just about to unopen. Even Ian starts his journey off near a beach in Cologne. It's no accident that these life-changing events happen in or near bodies of water, and throughout the novel, whenever a character is at a precipice, there's always a lake. Now, the idea of a lake spirit like the Rusalka or the Lorelei is an interesting addition since they're generally malevolent creatures. So my 
best guess is that they're added to represent death of the old self or the growing pains of change. All right, friends. So that's all I have to say on The Huntress by Kate Quinn for now. So let's jump on over to this month's adventure flight. If you'd enjoyed this book, I would recommend picking up The Lovely War by Julie Berry. This is a historical fantasy novel that mixes World War II history with Greek gods and is a magical delight. There's also The Rose Code by Kate Quinn. So as we've seen with The Hunters, Kate Quinn is the queen of World War II historical thrillers and this one about code talkers has been on my radar for quite a while. If you like Nina's survival tactics in the harsh Siberian wilderness, The Forest of Vedish and Stars by Kristen Harmel might be a good one to pick up next. Since this is a coming-of-age tale about a young woman who uses her knowledge of wilderness survival to help Jewish refugees escape the German occupation. If you want more Russian folklore, like the Rusaklas on the other hand, I would recommend one of my favorites, which is The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden. It's a historical fantasy trilogy that follows a strange young girl as she navigates a changing Russia and bridging the gap between the old spirits and the new. Well, that is a wrap on season two of the Scones and Thomas Book Club podcast. As we shift into autumn, we are launching season three with The House of Earth and Blood by Sarah J. Mass. If you've been reading my blog or following my socials for any length of time, then you will know that I am a major Sarah J. Mass fangirl and I cannot wait to reread this first book in the Crescent City series with you. Now, there are a decent number of content warnings for this one, so I'll just have to leave a link for those in the show notes for you to peruse at your leisure, but I have already read this, and there is so much to unpack in this book. Thank you again for spending your day with me, and I hope to see you back on September 26th for our chat about House of Earth and Blood. Please share your pictures of you listening to the podcast or reading along with the hashtag Scones and Tums Book Club, and let's get connected. Until next time, stay cozy.